Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. How are you guys doing? Great, good. It's great to be with you. Um, Like Chris shared, my name is Mackenzie Matthews. I'm Connections Pastor at Timberline. Some of you might know my husband, Justin. Um, He's our student ministries pastor, J-Matt, as they call him. Um, We have a a three-and-a-half-year-old son. Isn't he cute? Twist my arm. I'll show you a picture. (laughs) But that's me, and I'm so honored to be here, to be with you today. Thank you for being here. Um, Thank you for joining us online. Uh, We are continuing our series called Jesus Hope, Help, and Healing, where we are focusing on Jesus and what he did specifically through the book of Mark with his life, with his ministry. We're working through verse by verse, taking in each miracle, each teaching, each posture of Jesus's life, episode by episode, and asking what hope, help, and healing did he offer and is he offering to us and through us in our world today. This morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. It's a solid chunk of scripture. Um, It breaks into three sections, which we're gonna read kind of section by section, then I wanna break it down, try to discover what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? And what does he have for us today? What is being said? And then what do we do with that? The so what of that? So, Before we jump right into Mark chapter 12, um, it's pretty key that we read the room, that we place ourselves in the context of what is happening. It's always the case that if you really want to understand scripture, you have to do the work of learning the context. Like, where is this? When is this? Who is this for? So we can see it rightly. Understanding the context changes everything. So putting ourselves in the timeline, this is Tuesday in the final week of Jesus's life in Jerusalem. Pastor Foth always says in this that Jesus is turning the corner towards home. <laughs> it's also Passover week. So Jewish people from all over the place have traveled to be in Jerusalem. It is busy, it is crowded, it is noisy as people come to celebrate this festival. It would have been bustling with people, with action. Two days ago, on Sunday, Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on a donkey. Monday, yesterday, he went into the temple courts exposing all of the corruption, driving out money changers, flipping tables, judging what God's house had become. He's fierce. And then this day, Tuesday, there are cat and mouse games played by the religious leaders to try and trap and discredit Jesus. And Jesus humbly and confidently allowed for the religious leaders to do this. He engaged with them, completely unthreatened, despite their agendas. It's powerful to recognize that. They've asked questions about his authority, about taxes, about marriage, about heaven, about the most important commandment, the most important things. Tough questions. They're trying to put them in a pickle. This was the best that they could come up with. And Jesus engages them humbly and confidently, completely unthreatened. Today, we're looking at the final engagement with 
the religious leaders and really the final teaching of Jesus before a crowd. We'll see him before a crowd again, but next time he'll be silent as they yell to crucify him, where Jesus will hand himself over willingly to be crucified, sacrificing himself in the moments that change all moments. It's not far from this one, but this is really his last public teaching, his last message before his adversaries, before the curious onlookers, before the happen to be there public in this crowd. So it's Tuesday, um, late afternoon, maybe early evening. They've kind of been at this all day in the courtyard of the Temple Mount, which that, the, t- the courtyard is beautiful. It's opulent. Um, there are limestone walls. There's a marble-covered courtyard. I imagine the golden hour of sunlight. You guys know the golden hour, right, when the sun's going down and it shines at that angle that seems to illuminate everything in this warm hue. It's my favorite time of day. Right? But I imagine it, that light shining off of the limestone and the marble and the Corinthian brass in the courtyard. That's where we pop in for today's reading. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12, you can also follow along. Um, we're going to check out the first section starting in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Jesus asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? I want to pause there for a moment. Now, all that Jesus has done, especially in the last few days, have raised the question, this Jesus, who does he think he is? It's a question that the whole book of Mark has sought to engage that we have pressed into over the course of this series in the book of Mark, focusing on Jesus, right? And all that we've seen, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. Could this be the one we've hoped for? It's like they're asking, is it legit? Is this real? What does this mean? Right? They were all asking this, and in a way, we are all still asking this today. The opening verse, the very opening words of the book of Mark declare the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There it is. (laughs) Is it the good news? Is he? He says he is, right? This question of Jesus and his messianic identity uh, is no small question, but it's what we're brought to here. And it's really what we're all asking here too. Is he what the Bible claims him to be? Was he just an incredible man, an anointed teacher, a prophet, or truly the incarnated God himself? No small question. Now, the religious leaders here are called by Jesus the teachers of the law. They were basically lifelong studiers. They would be multiple PhD equivalent academics. They are people who devoted their entire lives to the law, to the Hebrew scriptures, to our Old Testament. They were fiercely devoted and actually deserve a ton of respect in that devotion. But we see this hypocrisy exposed, corruption exposed exposed, which we'll see more in our reading today in this next section. But despite their devotion, they lost the point. Their devotion wasn't the problem. Their hypocrisy was. And Jesus here engages them in essentially a riddle. Without being prompted by a question, Jesus takes the conversation directly to the heart of their beef with him, this audacious claim of Messiah. It's a riddle. 
of Messianic identity when he asks, why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the son of David? It's interesting because that fact, the Messiah coming from the line of David, is not a debated issue. This would have been common knowledge. Um, It's seen in many places throughout scriptures. We see it in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7. All the Jews understood this. Everyone agreed on this. It would be like asking us here today who are located right on the foothills, northern Colorado, right? If we were asked, are the mountains west? We would say they are, right? How many of you use that as the time-tested navigational truth? Yes, some of us do that, right? It is time-tested. If you're from here, likely, if you grew up here, you knew the frame of reference for finding your way around, about north, southeast, and west, right? If you tell me, something's on the southeast corner, you give me cross streets, I know where that is, because the mountains are always west. I'm from here. That's what I grew up doing. I grew up knowing. Now, my husband, bless him, he hasn't learned this. He's more of a right-left kind of guy. He's from Tennessee. Yes, someone agrees. Someone's a right-left person up here. Okay, I see. He would prefer I give him landmarks, right? Like four counts beyond the crooked tree to the right. Or like when you hear the beehive on the red door to the left, right? I tease, but it's true. He's been here 13 years and he hasn't grasped this. He's still one left and right. What did we do before the GPS, right? What did we do? Now, that's all an aside. But the mountains being west, even if you don't use it for navigation, is a common agreement. It's agreed that the Messiah will be coming from the line of David. So why is he asking? Why is he asking? The central intent of the religious leaders of this time has been to discredit Jesus, to prove that he is in fact not the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah to be a political leader, to be a king from the royal line of David. So when they say son of David, it's like saying Messiah. We see this in the triumphal entry. Um, In Matthew's account, when it says a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, when others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, Hosanna, the coming Messiah. This was infuriating to the religious leaders. In Luke's account following this moment, it says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. It's like, hey, quit that. I see that, quit it. (laughs) And Jesus replied, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. The first point, if you are taking notes, if you're following along with our app today, is Jesus is more than a mere king. Jesus is more than a mere king. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? Then Jesus tells this riddle. Said David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How can then he then be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Jesus points to something fundamental to them the Messiah coming from the line of David, and then he shocks them within those assumptions by challenging the idea that he will simply be a king. He quotes a beloved psalm back to them. 
Psalm 110. It's as common as maybe what Psalm 23 is for us, like beloved, right? And it's here that he points out that David calls the Messiah, my Lord. In this culture, the father or the elder is always superior to the son, the son subordinate to the father, to the ancestor. But by calling his offspring, my Lord, he distinguishes him as his sovereign. He is certainly not less than a king, but he's also much more. He is a son of David, and he is the incarnation of God himself, God sending himself into our world. We read it in Isaiah, which really gets us into the Christmas spirit. (laughs) Isaiah 9, chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. We see in the first chapter of John, describes it, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I love the way Eugene Peterson says the same verse in the message. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Messiah is a king from the line of David and sovereign Lord of lords and king of kings who reigns above it all, like we just saying, God made flesh. He's more than a mere king. The end of this first section says, the crowd listened with delight. (laughs) I wonder what they were delighted with. Did they love the experts being silenced? Was it like a spiteful kind of delight? Were they in awe of him, amazed at his wisdom, his generosity, his tact? Were they looking for a spectacle? I wonder what Jesus thought of their delight. As I've thought about this and the remainder of our verses we're looking at today, it's made me ask the question, what impresses God? What impresses him? What is pleasing to him? Where in my life am I aligned with that? Am I? So as we dive into this next section, I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind too. What impresses God? So as we shift from this first section to the next, from verse 37 to 38, Jesus stops engaging with the religious leaders at this point. It's like they're here, you know, we've been having this riddle, this talk, and then at one point he just stops talking to them. They're here, but he turns. And this next part, he uses them as the object lesson, no longer engaging with them them. It says, as he taught, Jesus says, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes, be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, to have the utmost important seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Yikes. Wow. He says, watch out. He's giving us a warning here. 
that these revered, respected religious leaders are not what they seem. He is not impressed. And what are the things he points to? There are several things that we see here. There's keeping of appearances, image. There's a high view of self, desiring honor and respect. We see pride. We see injustice. We see making a show of religious activity. The next point, beware of religion that is a mere show. Beware of religion that's a mere show in yourself and in others. I've heard it said that the biggest Pharisee you know is the one within your own heart. Now, it says that they like, they like to walk around in flowing robes, to be greeted with respect, to have the most important seats, places of honor at the banquets. The word for like is the same as desire. They desire these things. Maybe it wasn't obvious to everyone else. Maybe it was, but God knows hearts. He knew theirs. He knows ours. These religious leaders, the teachers of the law, again, the multiple PhD equivalent, revered and respected academics, they are religious. They seem like they must be so close to God. They look the part, they act the part, they sound like the part. Everybody thinks so. We would have been impressed. You know, if it looks like a cat and acts like a cat, sounds like a cat, it's a cat, right? And yet, Jesus' words, it's all a show. More than that, they are soaked in injustice. Verse 40, it says they devour widows' houses. Rut row, that's a tough pill to swallow. The orphans and widows were to be especially cared for. In Exodus, they were commanded, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, they will cry to me and I will certainly hear their cry. Or in Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow. All throughout scripture, you can read commands to care for the orphan and the widow. And again, no one knew the law, the commands of scripture better than these academics. God's heart is fierce for the poor and vulnerable. It always has been. In this society, none was more vulnerable than the widow or the orphan. So they, these religious leaders, desired respect and honor and the power and the appearances, and they neglected the vulnerable. Their study, their knowledge, their commitment, their devotion didn't translate to fruit in their everyday lives. It didn't lead them to do the very things that they were commanded to do. But they knew they still neglected those closest to God's heart. Ouch. If you remember last week, we talked about the weightiest of questions. I love the way Pastor Donnie put that. The weighty question when Jesus asked, was asked, what's the most important commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and then love your neighbor as yourself. These religious leaders are doing so much, so much striving, so much study, so much devotion, but did it translate to love in their actions? To loving God with all you got, and then loving that which God loves your neighbor. If we take that question inward, 
I find that to be very convicting. Now, I'm a pastor, at which I'm so humbled and honored and learning all the time. I am not to be put on a pedestal. I will fall directly off of that. promise you that. But I heard someone describe people who work in ministry, like I do as professional Christians. (laughs) Blessings, right? But I feel so convicted reading this because I get to study scripture as a part of my job. But so do these religious leaders. I get to stand up here and teach scripture, which I love. So did they, right? I can do all this and miss it, it could be a show. You know, we have access to more knowledge than we have ever had. I can read on my Bible app 74 different versions, English versions of the Bible. I can Google scripture. I can listen to countless sermons, the best available at my fingertips. I have access to unbelievable worship services to stream all the time. I have access to resources upon resources when it comes to study and learning scripture. So do you, right? Now, it's important to pay attention to the sourcing of what you're listening to. I'm not saying all Google results are going to be positive. I'm not. But even the best, the trusted, most trusted content, we have more available to us than ever before in history. And I love it. I love to learn. I desire to grow in wisdom. I do. But I also can't help but notice here that these religious leaders missed the point. And even if you are not a pastor or you are not a, quote, official religious leader, the question still pertains for you. How can what you know not translate? We have all this knowledge that doesn't translate to the actions of our everyday lives, aligning with God's heart. Have we missed point, to love him with all we got, and then love our neighbor as ourselves, right? He says, watch out. Watch out. Or as it says in 2 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Beware of religion that's a mere show. And again, what impresses God? As we move to this last section, starting in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more money into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Picture it with me. Jesus, having just given this stern warning, then sits opposite the collection stations for the offering. Those containers would have looked something like this. You can see a courtyard. You can imagine it. And this is what the containers would have looked like. Trumpet-looking funnels with the 
a base at the bottom that would collect everything, right? Now remember, it's Passover week. It's Passover week. Commotion is everywhere and people are giving. Families who have been saving some for a whole year to come and give to the temple. It says in verse 41, many rich people threw in large amounts. It would have been bags or sacks of coins in these metal treasury containers. It would have been loud and noisy as they clanked through to the bottom of that offering, right? It would have been literally noisy. And then the poor widow came and puts in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. They would have looked like this. She didn't make a scene. It probably didn't make much of a sound. These coins worth only a few cents. They were the smallest in their circulation of currency at that time. Not unlike our pennies now. Mere pennies. How many pennies do you guys have around these days? I find them to be such a nuisance. I don't carry around cash. Everything's digital now, but I find them to be a nuisance carrying around pennies. These tiny copper That's all she has, mere pennies. What impresses God? Pennies. (laughs) Notice she doesn't hold one back for herself. Everything she has in the palm of her hands, she gave. And it's more than all the others. Now, I've been in a few fundraising environments where a large sum of money will be gifted or donated, and the response is always this reaction to such a generous gift. Thank you for this generous gift. How generous, this big and generous gift. And that's because the amount is large. In reality, a large gift doesn't equate to a generous one. Only the person who does the giving knows if it's generous or not. What's an overwhelming amount of money for one person might be drops in the bucket for another. Only the giver knows if it's actually generous. If something is generous, it's sacrificial. It's a sacrifice to give, which is what makes it generous. Many rich people threw in large amounts out of their margin. And she didn't leave a margin. She was all in here. Sacrificial. The third point today is quiet, sacrificial love is never missed by God. Quiet, sacrificial love is never missed by God. Giving sacrificially certainly is not limited to finances, right? But it isn't less than finances either. Now, this account isn't prescribing that you give back your entire paycheck in the offering today, right? The Lord gave you this, give it all back. That's not what this is saying. But this does allow us for a moment to talk about money, to ask again, what impresses God? Is he impressed with money the way we are? Money is such a necessary and impactful part of our lives. Learning to handle money with wisdom today will be a blessing for you tomorrow, right? 10 out of 10 would agree. (laughs) It would, it would be. Now, if you've never been taught money management or you're at a point in your life where it would be good to reassess or reprioritize finances, I wanna encourage you to press into that. I'm a big fan of Financial Peace University. We have one starting in January could be something to press into. It's worth the work of addressing your financial health, (laughs) always. Now, money isn't good or bad, it's neutral. It's neutral, 
It's the love of money that becomes an idol in our lives, becomes the place we find security, the place we build identity, the thing we strive for. Giving money, tithing in a regular way, is a way to break the chokehold of it. It's a way of saying, I trust you, God, with my money and my life. God doesn't need our money, but he loves us. He wants us to be liberated from the control that money can have over us. Giving generously is an act of worship. It is. Now, sacrificially giving, it's not limited to finances. What else could sacrificial love look like for you? I want to challenge you to press into that, especially as we head to the end of this year, that you might be actively looking for ways to quietly sacrifice for another. You know, Mother Teresa famously said, we can do no great things, only small things with great love. We can do no great things, only small things with great You know, last month I sat in a baby shower for my dear Middle Eastern friend, Sophia. Sophia is from a very, very conservative Muslim community in the Middle East. And while she was there, Jesus in his kindness revealed himself to her in a dream. She began praying to him through a series of miraculous interventions. Very long story short, she found herself here a new believer who had literally left everything and started a new life with no support system in a brand new culture. She came to a Timberline Christmas Eve service, unchurched, unfamiliar with the Bible, but eager and desiring to know Jesus. In that same row sat a couple from our church in their 60s, the Donovans. They saw her and they decided to befriend her. It started with a simple conversation as it often does when you're sitting next to someone, you know, cordial, hello. But then something shifted for them, where they then offered a meal, that they might go out together, that they might actually befriend Sophia. And so on Christmas Eve, after church, they went out to a restaurant together. Sometimes quiet, sacrificial love might be just making space for someone else in friendship. As the Advent season begins next week, right? The whole season that brings a lot of activity and events, flash, noise, right? We got stuff to do, Beyond all that, what might it look like for you to see people that you sit alongside, that you are literally alongside as people to be loved, to befriend? What sacrifice might that be for you? You know, the Donovans had no idea what their friendship with Sophia would become. That small, quiet invitation, what that would turn into. When I talked with Sophia about sharing this story, she wanted to tell me all the other things that was costly for them, all the other ways that they have loved her. Shoot, I'm getting weepy just talking about it. She shared with me that they took her to the mountains for the first time, that they bought her her first pair of hiking boots, that they started her GoFundMe page as she raised money for her asylum case. They drove her to that asylum case. They shared their friends. They shared our culture. They celebrated holidays. They still get together like family. 
Sophia calls them mom and dad. And they say she's like the daughter that they never had. (laughs) And I got to see it up close as Sophia opened baby presents at her baby shower, hosted by who else than the Donovans. It was absolutely breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. Quiet, sacrificial love. Someone watching this widow could have only seen the two copper coins and thought nothing of it, not realizing it was all she had, mere pennies. Or they could look at the flash and show of these religious leaders and think, gosh, that must be what it's all about. It was a mere show. Many thought that the Messiah would merely be a king from David's bloodline, a human king among other kings. Jesus, our Messiah, he gave himself totally, all that he had. He reigns, he loves, he's loved us. He does love us perfectly. I want to remember that. I want to sit in that as we pray together this morning. God, we are moved by your grace and your love and your goodness, your generosity, your sacrifice. We're thankful. And God, we confess um, all the ways that our religion sometimes is a show or sometimes we feel like we're going through the motions, right? Or we get confused as to what it's actually all about. We miss it. God, where what we know maybe doesn't translate to the weightiest of things, to loving you and loving our neighbor. God, we confess that. Forgive us. Holy Spirit, would you come again to move in us and through us in our world, we know that you love us. And God, we acknowledge everything that we have is a gift from you. Even talking about money, we, we do take a moment to pray over our finances and however we feel about our money right now. We place ourselves before you. We know you are a provider and we ask that you would provide. That you are more than enough. And we want to trust you. Even if we don't with our money, we want to trust you. And God, would you lead us to places of sacrificial love? Even now, we ask that you would give us maybe pictures of what that might mean, what something small with great love could look like. What would you have us do? Would you guide us into that? And Lord, would you get the credit for all of it? And Lord, would you increase our view of you where you are not enough in our minds? Would you remind us that you're so much more, you're so much more than what we know. We pray for uh, an awareness of your reality, of your power, of your presence, of your goodness, that it would grow in us. We love you. It's in your name I pray. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving, for joining serving opportunities, and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.